Welcome back to Spoonful of Sugar. If you haven't already heard, here at SOS, we are now accepting applications for our 2024 student board. We are looking for interested medical students who have taken USMLE Step 1 to fill in both chair and member positions within our four subcommittees. This is an excellent opportunity to get experience in a leadership position, connect with medical students globally, and have a true impact on medical education, since the students selected to be on this board will essentially be in charge of producing the next season of Spoonful of Sugar. If you're interested in applying, please visit spoonfulofsugar.org apply for more information. I look forward to reviewing your applications. Now, let's get into today's episode. I'm excited to introduce to you our newest team member, Bilal Rana, a third-year medical student at Western University of Health Sciences in Pomona, California. Today, we'll be reviewing mood disorders. Hope you enjoy! Hello, future doctors. You're tuning in to Spoonful of Sugar, the podcast made for med students by med students, where we break down complex medical topics into bite-sized pieces for your success. I'm your host, Paul Rana, an OMS3 at Western U, and today we are deep diving into a crucial topic for the Stephen Complex, mood disorders. All right, before we jump into the nitty-gritty of mood disorders, let's set the stage. Recall that mood disorders are a group of psychiatric conditions characterized by disturbances in a person's emotional state, affecting their mood, energy levels, and daily functioning. Examiners really like to go after the functioning aspects, so I'll be sure to clarify that throughout this episode. This is a particularly high-yield area for the purposes of board exams, but also life, as according to a Harvard Medical School study, approximately 21% of U.S. adults experience a mood disorder at some point in their lives. No, that's not a fact you need to know, but I hope that allows us to appreciate this topic just a bit more. First things first, let's outline the main types of mood disorders that you'll need to know for the exam, and then we'll transition to a more Q&A format. We'll be talking about major depressive disorder, bipolar disorder, persistent depressive disorder, cyclothymic disorder, adjustment disorder. We'll also talk about the differences between normal and pathologic grief, as well as clarify the differences between postpartum blues, depression, and psychosis. There may be more, but for the purposes of board examinations, these are the most high-yield examples. Don't worry if you have difficulty recalling the details right away. While some students may call the psych section of the step and complex gimme points relative to something like pathology, the reality is there are quite a number of tricks and pitfalls examiners like to get us with. Rest assured, we'll make it out together. One more disclaimer, the pharmacology for this section is actually quite involved. I anticipate this episode lasting around 40 minutes. Therefore, I'll be making a part two for this video, zooming in on those details in the near future. So stay tuned for that. We'll start our discussion with a brief analogy, and once we understand this analogy, it'll be kind of downhill from here. First, do you remember sine waves from mathematics? Okay, I know it's not everyone's cup of tea, but hear me out. Sine waves oscillate between negative one and positive one. So let's think of that as the normal range for human emotions. Anything that is just beyond that plus or minus one, in addition to other relevant symptomatic criteria, would be grounds for a possible diagnosis of a mood disorder. Furthermore, if we are much further from plus or minus one, we will begin to notice mood disorders associated with loss of function 
which again will be elaborated further through this episode. All right, let's begin with the highest yield disorder, major depressive disorder. Can you tell me what it is? Okay, if you had a hard time pinning down a quick and easy definition, that's okay. Because MDD is multifactorial, and it takes an incredibly detailed history to be able to diagnose. Realistically, a question stem won't contain all the information necessary for a real-world diagnosis of depression. So, for the purposes of board examinations, it's going to look very formulaic, and you're going to want a handy mnemonic. Do you know which one I'm referring to? SIG E CAPS. Let's go over it letter by letter. So what does the S stand for? Sleep. Specifically decreased sleep. What about the I? Interest. Specifically decreased interest. Also known as anhedonia. So you can think of this as somebody who traditionally likes sports, hanging out with friends or hiking, but then... Once they start experiencing depressive symptoms, they no longer find interest in doing these things. What about G? G stands for guilt, specifically increased guilt. So of, of the Siggy cast mnemonics, I know we haven't gone through all of them yet, G is the only one that you'll see an increase in. You'll only see an increase in guilt. Everything else will be decreased. The E stands for energy. And kind of as I hinted to earlier, this is going to be decreased energy. What about C? Concentration. Okay, so concentration is decreasing. And then A, appetite. We have decreased appetite. P stands for psychomotor retardation. So slower body movements. And last but certainly not least, the last S stands for Suicidal ideations, pretty common in folks with major depressive disorder. However, I do want to note something about this. They may not always use this in a question stem. And in my own experience, I've hardly seen suicidal ideation being used as one of the symptoms in the question stem. But don't let it throw you off if they do use it. Don't want you to lose free points. So how many of these SIGI CAPS criteria do we need in order to make a diagnosis of major depressive disorder. So most sources are going to tell you five or more, with at least one of them being depression or anhedonia. I should also note that these SIGI CAPS criteria are what often lead to loss of function, which is something examiners like to hone in on. Okay, let's talk about that. Essentially, loss of function refers to the fact that the patient is no longer going about their day-to-day -day routine in a productive, peaceful, and purposeful manner. Some examples could be a diminished ability to perform activities of daily living, difficulty forming and maintaining interpersonal relationships, and a compromised ability to work a job properly. These are just some of the few examples you might be seeing. A quick side note. On your exam, it's not in your best interest to meticulously count the number of SIGI CAPS criteria seen in the question stem. You know, you don't want to go in there and say, oh, there's four criteria, there's six criteria. Not really what you should be doing. The idea here is that it'll be obvious enough that the criteria are met. Your job is going to be just recognizing them. Hence why knowing the SIGI CAPS mnemonic is going to be gold for the purposes of exams. 
And we'll go over some practice scenarios in the end to kind of hammer this down. Now, as far as treatment goes, you know, I said I'd be leaving pharmacology to a second section, but I'd like to at least briefly introduce it, given how high yield it is. So that way, if you're only watching this video, at least you get something out of it. So the first line treatment for depression, can you tell me what that would be? SSRIs, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. And some examples of SSRIs can be citalopram, escitalopram, fluoxetine, fluvoxamine, paroxetine, and sertraline. Now, what is second line? So there are two second lines, actually. You can look at SNRIs and TCAs. So those are your selective norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors and your tricyclic antidepressants. And both of them have something in common. They treat another uh, pathology, another symptom that the patient might be experiencing. Do you know which one I'm referring to? Sorry if this question is vague. Neuropathy. So on a question stem, if you see a patient, you know, coming in with symptoms of depression, but they're also having symptoms of neuropathy, usually you're going to give them an SNRI or a TCA. Um, some big examples that you're going to be wanting to know, venlafaxine and duloxetine. Now, I know I mentioned fluoxetine earlier, fluoxetine, duloxetine. These often get confused quite a lot, but just remember, duloxetine, do not confuse with fluoxetine. And I think of the D in duloxetine, I think of dos, like number two in Spanish. So it kind of helps me remember that it's second line. And the dos also helps me remember that it helps treat two things, the depression and the neuropathy. So hopefully that helps a little bit. You also have your... Uh, tertiary tricyclic antidepressants, so that would be your imipramine, amitriptyline, and clomipramine, as well as your uh, secondary tricyclic antidepressants. These are nortriptyline and desipramine. Again, not going to go into too many details here. I just wanted to introduce them. And as a bonus, I'd like to mention treatments for atypical depression. There are two. Do you know which two can work for atypical depression? So those would be your monoamine oxidase inhibitors and your SSRIs. So examples of monoamine oxidase inhibitors would be phenelzine, tranalcipramine, isocarboxazid, and selegiline. Now, what is atypical depression? So it's just like Siggy caps, but it's different. So you would experience, or you would see rather, hyperphagia instead of loss of appetite. You'd see hypersomnia instead of loss of sleep. And you'd see this interesting feature called mood reactivity. Do you know what that is? Mood reactivity is when, when somebody has improved mood when something positive happens. So what you'll notice in folks with depression is that something positive will happen in their life. They won't necessarily be genuinely happy. Where somebody with atypical depression, they will still have improved mood. There is a... Another symptom that you should know, it's related to psychomotor retardation, but it's a little bit more severe. Do you know which one I'm referring to? Right, so this is leaden paralysis. It's essentially the same thing as psychomotor retardation, but patients will often complain of really heavy limbs. And then there's one more feature of atypical depression, I'll just share it with you. That's sensitivity to rejection 
let's not overthink this. It's exactly what it sounds like. For example, if you're if you see somebody with atypical depression and they receive certain kind of feedback at work, right? Or they are rejected from a friend group or they're not invited to a party. They will take that particularly more hard than somebody who does not have atypical depression. These are just a few examples and we there are more to look out for, but I just thought I'd share a few. All right, everyone, we are going to move on to bipolar disorder. Specifically, let's focus on type 1. What would you expect to see in a patient with type 1 bipolar disorder? Yes, there are a number of things, but the quick explanation would be alternating mania and depression for about a week's period of time. Now, we've already talked about depression. We've talked about the Siggy caps, but what in the world is mania? Okay, so like depression, there are a lot of things to know, and conveniently, there's a mnemonic. Do you know what that mnemonic is called? Big fast, exactly. Let's go over it one by one. So the D stands for distractibility. The I stands for impulsivity. What about G? Grandiosity. So this would be an elevated sense of self-importance. What about the F? Light of ideas. So what does that mean? For example, one second you're going to be talking about you're going to see a patient talking about school, and the next second they're going to be talking about martial arts, and then they're going to talk about the re-elected president of Zimbabwe, which, by the way, is relevant as of August 2023. Point being is that folks with bipolar disorder who are experiencing flight of ideas are just going to go from one thing to another, and there's not really a sense of cohesion there. What about A? So the A stands for activity increases. What about S? Sleep deficit. Okay, now this might be similar to Siggy Caps. I know we talked about sleep issues with depression, but this is a little different because unlike depression where patients tend to feel fatigued, here, despite the sleep deficit, they're feeling just fine. I mean, they could go three hours, two hours of sleep over the course of a week and not feel much of it. So that's one of the key differences you'll have to discern when you're talking about sleep deficits in either bipolar disorder or depression. And the T stands for talkativeness. Pretty self-explanatory, just nonstop talking. All right, how many of these dig fast criteria do we need to make a diagnosis of bipolar disorder? Generally four or more, but remember, don't meticulously count. You'll be able to tell right away if they're pointing you towards a diagnosis of bipolar disorder. Now, here are some additional things to look out for. Mania may be accompanied by risky or inappropriate behavior. Important point, severe mania is sometimes accompanied by psychosis. Now, what is psychosis? Psychosis includes things such as hallucinations or delusions. It's kind of an umbrella. Hallucinations, so you can kind of see or hear things that are not there. But what are delusions? Delusions, as people define it, are false beliefs that are inconsistent with reality. Okay, so this is perhaps better explained by some examples. So, for instance, someone falsely believes that Anderson Cooper is talking to them directly over the TV, despite him obviously addressing the nation. And for those who don't know, Anderson Cooper is a news anchor. 
Another example is someone believing that their neighbor is plotting to harm them in some way, despite no evidence pointing in that direction. That's the key point. No evidence pointing in that direction. One more example, just to round things off, and this, this is silly, but it'll probably help you remember. Think about an Italian man who is needlessly doomsday prepping for fear that the Swiss army will plan a surprise attack on their hometown. Despite Switzerland's commitment to neutrality, having not fought a war since 1847, not to mention that it was a civil war, so they were fighting among themselves. I know, I know, a bit far off from medicine. But I hope this helped you hammer the high-yield point. And what is that high-yield point? That delusions involve thoughts which have little to no basis in reality. And one more thing I want to mention. This dig-fast mnemonic, it might seem mild. Oh, distractibility, impulsivity, everybody gets that, right? But not quite. Understand that when we're talking about bipolar type 1, we're talking about patients with manic episodes. And patients who are experiencing manic episodes almost have a complete loss of function. Sometimes they even require hospitalization, practically losing their mind, marbles falling off their rockers, so to speak. So on your exam, what you're going to do is you're going to look out for something that is very out of the ordinary to help clue you into a diagnosis of bipolar 1. I assure you, it won't be as ambiguous as you think. And what about treatment? What do we do for treatment for bipolar 1? So it's a two-fold treatment. You're looking at mood stabilizers as well as antipsychotics. So some examples of mood stabilizers are lithium, valproate, carbamazepine, lamotrigine. And for antipsychotics, think of zeprasidone, quetiapine, risperidone, aripiprazole, and haloperidol. Quick note about aripiprazole. It's not omeprazole. Just because it has prazole in the end of its name, that means it does not make it a PPI. Aripiprazole is for antipsychotics and omeprazole is for PPIs. Please don't get those twisted. All right, and moving right along to bipolar type 2. What will we expect to see in a patient with bipolar type 2? Again, this is pretty open-ended, but what you're going to see is cycling through hypomania and depression for at least four days. But what is hypomania? I know we already talked about mania, but what is hypomania? So I want to make this clear. Hypomania also follows the dig fast criteria. The difference is that it is not nearly as severe. I know that's probably not helpful, but with some scenarios, this will make more sense. So imagine someone working 40 hours over time to proactively meet their project deadlines with three hours of sleep for just under a week and feeling like their usual self while doing so. Compare that to someone frantically building a space station in their backyard to outcompete NASA in Space Race Part 2 whilst using dangerous equipment and chemicals without protection. Notice how the latter is very clearly detached from reality, whereas the first is rather conceivable but unhealthy. These are the kinds of differences you'll be able to you'll need to be able to discern on your exam. Very rarely will the presentations be ambiguous, but if it does seem that way, you may want to read the question stem a bit more carefully. And what about treatment? What do we do for treating patients with bipolar type 2? All right, so you have your mood stabilizers. Again, that's your lithium, valproate, carbamazepine, lamotrigine. What about the antipsychotics? Right, we are not using antipsychotics. Bipolar type 2 does not have symptoms of psychosis. 
Good job. Alright, so far we've discussed major depressive disorder with the Siggy Caps criteria and bipolar type 1 and 2 with Dig Fast, alongside a brief discussion of the treatments for completeness sake. There are a few more details concerning these disorders that may show up on the exam, but they are on the lower yield side, so for the sake of brevity, we'll move on to disorders that fall between the plus and minus 1 spectrum, aka the diseases with relatively normal functioning. Alright, let us begin with persistent depressive disorder. Can you tell me what it is? So PDD is also known as dysthymia, which is a milder form of depression, meaning it is not usually associated with some of the more serious symptoms like uh, suicidal ideation, and often has less of the Siggy Caps symptoms. You're usually looking at around three. Again, you don't need to meticulously count the number of symptoms. Qualitatively, you want to look at a question stem and see whether they're exhibiting a little bit of the symptoms or a lot of the symptoms. No need to be exact. But there is something you do want to be exact for, and that is the time frame for diagnosis. How long do symptoms need to last to make a diagnosis of persistent depressive disorder? Two years, very high yield. So do not pick PDD if symptoms have been presenting for less. What about cyclothymia or cyclothymic disorder? So these are alternating states of hypomania and dysthymia. So effectively bipolar two without the signs and symptoms of major depressive disorder. So you can kind of notice how PDD and cyclothymia are very similar in that they're milder variations of their uh, more serious forms, major depressive and bipolar respectively. And what about the time frame for diagnosis of cyclothymia? How long do symptoms need to last? Two years. It's also two years. Very high yield. Now, one other thing I want to discuss. Do patients with cyclothymia ever return to a normal mood and functioning? Well, there was a trick question in there. They're, they usually have normal functioning throughout. But as far as a normal mood, they can return to a normal mood. Sometimes they don't. And if they do, that sense of normalcy doesn't last for more than two months over the two years that they've been having this problem. All right, now we're going to talk about some extra mood disorders. For the first two that I'm about to talk about, it's not as important to know the treatment as most of the questions you will be receiving about these are going to want you to discern the presentation. The last one we're going to cover will require us to know some management. So the first one we're going to talk about is adjustment disorder. What is adjustment disorder? So you're going to see situational depression. And when I say situational, I'm referring to an acute stressor. This is usually very identifiable. So examples would be job scares, marital problems, health scares, and so on and so forth. You will see an identifiable stressor on the question stem. Now, what is the time frame for diagnosis? Less than six months. The symptoms need to last less than six months. Um, one note about this, uh, for adjustment disorder, I mentioned situational depression. You can also experience situational anxiety. It's kind of a mixed bag. Uh, just look for an identifiable stressor in less than six months. I'll kind of be pointing you towards a diagnosis of adjustment disorder. Now let's talk about normal and pathologic grief. Let's talk about normal grief for a second. What is normal grief? So it's grieving over the loss of, say, a loved one uh, without loss of function. And what is the time frame for diagnosis? 
less than a year. This is really important, okay? If you see either loss of function or the symptoms last for more than a year, then it becomes pathologic grief. And when we are talking about loss of function, what you're going to want to look for are some of the SIG-E CAPS symptoms. They won't show all of them. It's not, it may not be all five plus, but it's, it's going to be a bit. It doesn't have to be extensive. I, I want to hammer this point one more time, though. It's loss of function or greater than a year. It doesn't have to be both. Keep that in the back of your head. All right, and this last one we're going to talk about, it's postpartum blues, depression, and psychosis. So this one's going to require us to know some management. Let's start with the blues. What is the postpartum blues? What are the postpartum blues, rather? Pretty mild symptoms, some sadness after delivering of a baby. Nothing too serious. What about postpartum depression? So the word depression is in there, so that'll probably clue you into the SIGI CAPS criteria, and you'd be correct. And postpartum psychosis, well, we talked about psychosis, hallucinations, delusions. I'm kind of giving the answer right away. Uh, this is going to be a lot more noticeable, especially with the examples that we have up ahead. And what about the time frame for diagnosis? So all these symptoms are usually within the first month of delivery, give or take. Now let's talk about the treatment. I said we were going to need to know some management. How do we manage postpartum blues? Nothing. You just observe. Uh, postpartum blues usually goes away on its own, doesn't require treatment. What about postpartum depression? So the word depression is in there. Let's not overthink this. If the word depression is in there, you're usually thinking of first line SSRIs. Yes. Now, postpartum psychosis, what do you do here? So postpartum psychosis is an emergency of sorts. You gotta hospitalize the mother. You cannot leave the mother alone with the baby because in postpartum psychosis, usually they are a danger to themselves and the baby. So you're gonna need to separate the two. This is very high yield. All right, if you made it this far, congratulations. Give yourself a pat on the back. We're gonna be moving on to practice scenarios. This is gonna be the best way to learn this uh, material. It's really difficult to learn psych with just definitions didactically. It honestly makes a lot more sense with scenarios, which is why I tried my best to incorporate some scenarios throughout this podcast. And we're just gonna go over some more over here. Again, don't feel discouraged if you get any wrong. We're learning together. And here's scenario number one. A 45-year-old female presents to her primary care physician with difficulty sleeping for the past four months. Further questioning reveals her concerns about feeling guilty for mistakes she made in her prior relationship and a decreased ability to focus at work as a result. She no longer enjoys ice skating and hasn't gone to the rink since her symptoms began. Although she reports feeling sad, she denies any suicidal thoughts, but admits to not eating as much or as frequently as she used to. Her physical exam is unremarkable. What is the diagnosis? So, starting it right off with major depressive disorder, remember, I said in this question stem that she denies any suicidal 
thoughts. Uh, this is a pretty common thing that the board examiners will do. I've noticed that a lot of diagnoses of major depressive disorder for the purposes of exams, they try to mention that they deny any suicidal thoughts. Uh, so even though that's one of the Siggy Caps criteria, don't expect to see it a lot. But if it does show up again, don't want you to lose three points. All right, scenario number two. What if you have a 40-year-old male presenting to his primary care physician with difficulty concentrating at work? He feels like his energy is, quote, not like it used to be for about three years or so, unquote, and that if it was, he would have been promoted by now. Although he has not gotten in trouble by the higher-ups due to his concentration issues, he also hasn't looked impressive to them either and is beginning to lose hope. What is the diagnosis here? All right, so this would be an example of persistent depressive disorder, aka dysthymia. Notice how it's not as severe. I only put three of the five Siggy Caps criteria just for completeness sake. So we had difficulty concentrating, lower energy, the idea of losing hope that's kind of within the Siggy Caps criteria. So notice you were able to probably, probably you were able to pick it up on it pretty quickly without meticulously counting, oh, are there three symptoms? Are there five symptoms? And, and that's really what we're going here. We're trying to look for pattern recognition. Also notice that I kind of buried in the quote that the symptoms have been going for about three years or so. Again, the time frame is really important. It's got to be lasting for at least two years. All right, next question. A 34-year-old man brought to the ED after being found wandering around the streets talking very rapidly about his plans to build an elevator on the moon. He strongly insists that he's the right one for the job and that everyone else are, quote, intellectually challenged goblins, unquote. He reports sleeping 90 minutes daily and spending his emergency funds on parts for his project. What is the diagnosis? Bipolar type 1, yes. You notice the mania symptoms. Now, where are the depressive symptoms? So while bipolar type 1 is also associated with depressive symptoms, they may not always give those. And from my experience... They usually don't give those, so don't expect them to show you both the mania and the depression. Otherwise, the question will be too easy. You know they can't do that. Um, another thing I want to mention, uh, I, I mentioned multiple uh, symptoms here. You had the talking rapidly, so that was the talkativeness. You had the sleep deficit, high, hyperactivity. Spending the emergency funds, that's an example of risky behavior. So those are some things that you want to look out for. Another thing I want to mention is that these types of questions, I know it might have been a little simple in this context, but on the board exam or when you're practicing questions, usually the multiple choice will also throw things at you such as psychosis or schizophrenia, and then you can get really confused. So uh, be sure to try to separate those two. Uh, hopefully I get to make a, another podcast talking about schizophrenia, schizophreniform disorder, so that way we can kind of distinguish those more easily. All right, next scenario, a 28-year-old woman presents to her gynecologist about four days after the delivery of her newborn daughter. She describes experiencing occasional tearfulness and feeling sad several days out of the week. She still takes good care of her baby and has no thoughts of hurting the baby. What is the diagnosis? So this would be postpartum blues, right? Notice that it wasn't too bad. It's, the symptoms are pretty mild. Now, what if you had a 24-year-old woman presenting to her gynecologist about five days after delivery of her newborn son, and now she's experiencing loss of pleasure, appetite, and sleep? She takes care of the baby, but sometimes has thoughts of hurting the baby and feels like she won't be a good mother. 
So this would be postpartum depression. A note about this, I mentioned having thoughts of hurting the baby. That can be kind of a trick, so be careful. It's not quite psychosis. This next example is you have a 31-year-old woman presenting to the gynecologist after being brought by her husband about six days after delivery of their newborn son. She's The husband is telling the gynecologist that his wife has been hearing voices telling her to drown the baby so that the world will be safe. Notice the clear difference in tone here. Postpartum psychosis is severe, it is scary, it requires hospitalization, requires separation from the baby, very high yield. Alrighty, we are about halfway there through the questions. Let's go on to the next one. A 75-year-old female presents to her psychiatrist to establish care. She says she lost her husband of 55 years due to a traumatic car accident eight months ago. She is tearful when bringing up stories about him and reports that she is ready to pass away to meet her husband in the afterlife. She also admits to seeing him on occasion at the library that they first met at, but doesn't believe that these visions are real. What would the diagnosis be here? So this would be normal grief. Now, what would make this pathologic grief? A few things. So if the symptoms, for example, they lasted for more than a year. Uh, she mentioned that she wants to pass away to meet her husband. By contrast, she just wants to die without any real purpose. And you would also notice a few of the CDCAPS criteria. Again, they don't have to meet all five out of nine. So an example would be, and since this is more of a guided question, so you kind of already know the answer. You have a 75-year-old female establishing care with a psychiatrist. She lost her husband of 55 years due to a traumatic car accident eight months ago. She feels guilty rushing him out of the house as she was getting as he was getting late for work rather than encouraging him to slow down and arrive in a safe manner. She reports that she wants to, quote, disappear without a trace, unquote, and also mentions having haunting visions of him around the house, which prevents her from sleeping. She also explains that she no longer invites her family over to her home anymore due to fear that her husband's ghost will curse them. Okay, so in this example, I did give quite a number of the CDCAPS criteria. Generally speaking, you won't have all of them, but if you do, that's a bonus. Uh, notice, too, that the timeline for this question was eight months, but the diagnosis here is still pathologic. So you notice the loss of function with the CDCAPS criteria. That's really important to note. All right, now we have a 20-year-old male presenting to a clinic with symptoms of fatigue, the patient states that most days he feels disinterested in basketball and reports difficulty concentrating on his chemistry projects. Upon further questioning, he states that he has not always felt this way, as last week he was able to pull five consecutive all-nighters for his other classes with two hours of sleep all while hitting a new PR at the gym. What is the diagnosis? So this is bipolar type 2. Um, notice here how in the beginning of the question stem, I put symptoms that Kind of sound like depression, but then when we moved on to the next part of the question stem, we saw more hypomania. Of course, a lot of you know this by now, but it's just good to reiterate. Be sure to read the whole question stem. It's only going to help you. And note here how the symptoms are hypomanic. Again, this is something that's pretty conceivable, but unhealthy. It's not quite off the rails as you might see in bipolar type 1. All right, we're almost there. Let's go to this next scenario. A 52-year-old female presents to her primary care physician for a routine well visit. She is currently taking levothyroxine for hypothyroidism and reports eating a well-balanced diet. Blood pressure is 127 over 86, heart rate 62, respirations 15. She is a lifetime non-smoker and drinks wine two to three times a week with her friends. 
When the physician asks her if she has any more concerns, she brings up that her mood has been constantly fluctuating over the past four years. She reports times where she learned how to ride horses and write several mystery novels with only four hours of sleep a day, while also mentioning times where she feels completely sapped of energy and motivation to pursue these interests. What's the diagnosis here? Alright, so we're noticing that fluctuating hypomania and dysthymia, this would be cyclothymia. Notice here I didn't necessarily mention the return to normalcy because that doesn't have to happen, but again, if it does, that normalcy usually lasts for less than two months over a period of two years. Another thing I want to mention is the elephant in the room. I talked about hypothyroidism. I mentioned her diet and her vitals. They will do this. The board examiners will do this. They will throw things at you that you really don't need to answer the question. So it's really helpful, again, to look at the answer choices and see what they're going for. So that way you're not highlighting all this information that you really don't need to answer the question. It's a good way for you to save time. It's an eight-hour exam. It's long. It's tiring. It's stressful. You don't need to fill your head with more things than you already have. Now on to the last scenario. A 64-year-old male is referred to a psychiatrist to discuss his depressive symptoms. He reports he's been feeling this way for the past five months due to board discussions at his company that mentioned laying off members at his department. Despite his excellent performance metrics and winning employee of the year, he worries his age will be reason enough for the higher-ups to let him go first. He has since lost appetite thinking about his job prospects, but he still plays golf with friends and watches TV to help him de-stress and maintains good relationships with his co-workers. What's the diagnosis here? Alright, so you may have done process of elimination, but nevertheless, this is adjustment disorder. Notice the time frame here. Was, he's been experiencing these symptoms for the past five months. The time frame is less than six months. Uh, notice, how, again, how the symptoms he's experiencing, I mean, he's been experiencing depressive symptoms, but they aren't as severe as what you would expect for something like major depressive disorder. And notice that these symptoms in this case were depressive symptoms. They don't have to be. They can also show symptoms of anxiety. Adjustment disorder isn't exclusive to either or. Okay, let's do a recap of the entire podcast episode. We first talked about major depressive disorder. These are the SIG-ECAPS criteria. Decreased sleep, decreased interest, increased guilt, decreased energy, decreased concentration, decreased appetite, psychomotor retardation, and suicidal ideations. We also talked about persistent depressive disorder, which unlike having five or more symptoms in the major depressive disorder, you're usually looking at around three, and the time frame for that is two years. We made a brief discussion about atypical depression. So this would be hyperphagia, hypersomnia, mood reactivity, leaden paralysis, and sensitivity to rejection. We also talked about bipolar type 1. This is the dig fast, distractibility, impulsivity, grandiosity, flight of ideas, increase in activity, sleep deficit, and talkativeness. You need at least four of the symptoms for a diagnosis of bipolar type 1. This is alternating mania and depression. And then you have bipolar type 2, which is alternating hypomania and depression. Think about a workaholic, for example. And then we also talked about cyclothymia, which is an on-off without a sense of normalcy. But if there is, that normalcy usually lasts for less than two months over a two-year time frame. Remember, again, the two years, very high yield, and you're looking at alternating hypomania and dysthymia. Adjustment disorder lasts for less than six months. It's blended. You can have depressive symptoms. You can have anxious symptoms. Key thing here, 
is not only the time frame that it lasts lasts uh, less than six months, but also the fact that there is a clearly identifiable stressor in the question stem. And the last thing we talked about, we also mentioned postpartum blues, depression, and psychosis. The blues, pretty fine, pretty mild, don't need to do anything. Postpartum depression, managed with SSRIs, postpartum psychosis is an emergency, hospitalize, separate the mother and baby. And symptoms usually last for about a month. All right, everyone, thank you for tuning into this podcast. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please visit our website at spoonfulofsugar.org and post them under the link for this episode. Next time on Dragon Ball Z, sorry, Spoonful of Sugar, I'll be taking a deep dive into pharmacology relevant to this episode. Good luck with studying, everyone. And remember that if you ever have an SOS moment while studying, Spoonful of Sugar is always here to help the medicine go down.